I'm a film historian, as you may have gathered, and um, I've got a particular interest in London as a subject. And I, I run a series of screenings at Birkbeck College, and I'll give you a little bit of promotion at the end for those in case anybody's interested in pursuing this subject further. It's a big subject. So what you're going to get is uh, a rapid tour, which I hope will offer you some pointers, some leads, and hopefully will introduce everybody, I hope, to at least one or two films they haven't seen or heard of. So what do we mean by Gothic? I was walking along the Thames Embankment uh, last night on my way to the Globe, and I came across this. That's um, the Clink Museum. And I was struck as I walked along the, the uh, South Shore just how many of the tourist attractions of London depend on the Gothic for their appeal. It's really solid all the way along. Allusions to dungeons, prisons, the past, what I would call broadly Gothic subjects. So we know we're in the right field here. But of course, Gothic is a very broad term. Uh, so broad that you can lose yourself in it. Um, this is just the Wikipedia disambiguation. <laughs> and that's only the beginning of it. Um, it can refer to a lot of things. And for anybody who might be a typographically literate in the audience, yes, that is set in Franklin Gothic. It, it is, in fact, a typeface. In fact, it's a whole family of types, as well as all of these other things. What is transport, you may wonder? A lot of ships mainly, and other things are named Gothic. So the list of applications of the term Gothic goes on a long way. If we're being uh, strict about where does Gothic come from in the modern world, then I guess we should go back to the Gothic literature boom of the late 18th century, and particularly one work, The Castle of Otranto. Horace Walpole, which is often taken to be the kind of springboard from which the cult of Gothic literature sprang. And there's one of the early illustrations for it. That's the, the ghost scene where the portrait comes to life. And that already shows us the kind of imagery, the kind of uh, uh, ghostly happening that is intrinsic to a lot of Gothic. But the direction I'm going in as a starting point is owes a great deal to Charles Dickens. And um, this is a famous painting, uh, Buss's painting, which shows this huge quantity, this cloud of characters coming out of Dickens' head. This was painted five years after his death. And he was seen as the font of so many stories, so many characters in um, literature in the mid-19th century. But it's not just lit characters in literature. It's also places and ways of seeing places. And of course, Dickens was a Londoner par excellence. He knew London like the back of his hand. He walked the streets of London. And um, London is the essential um, location for almost all of his stories. Uh, those stories run, of course, from the very early ones, from Oliver Twist and the old curiosity shop, uh, through our mutual friend to the mystery of Edwin Drood. So there's a thread of London settings and stories running right through um, Dickens' work. And he would walk the streets, as I said. There's a, a rather fine uh, film by William Rabin online, if anybody's interested, which is a dramatization of Dickens' walks called uh, The Houseless Shadow. Uh, well worth looking at if you want to sample Dickens' sense of nocturnal London. But I'm going to focus just on one particular work, which actually became Dickens' most popular work in terms of its replication in different media. And that's... Um, Christmas Carol. Uh, I was catching up on some of the Gothic imagery from some of the early, earlier Dickens um, stories. And you can see that it's not just the sites of exterior London, not just the streets, uh, but it's the interiors. And these, I think, in these early illustrations that accompanied the um, publication of the novels, it's in these that we see the, the Gothic atmosphere that Dickens is creating. In Christmas Carol, Christmas Carol was produced as a Christmas treat, as it were, and it was very quickly dramatized. Um, there are many versions of it on stage. There were readings from it. 
There were lantern slide sets, there were stereoscopic sets. It was a natural that when filmmaking started in the mid-1890s, uh, this would be a candidate for early dramatization. And in fact, um, somebody I'm interested in, um, namely, uh, let's just uh, turn the volume down a little bit, if we can, yes, that so you can hear me above it. So this is um, the very first Dickens film. Uh, it's um, a version made by Robert Paul in his brand new studio in Muswell Hill in 1901. I'm going to be talking about Robert Paul as the man who really created cinema in Britain uh, in my next talk in February next year. So this is a version of a story that everybody knows really well. And this is, um, it's very compressed, of course. It's quite a short film. It's a long film for the period, but it's a very short film in terms of covering all aspects of the story. So we have Ebenezer Scrooge setting off um, while everybody else is getting ready for Christmas. He, of course, is going home. Marley's ghost, Christmas is past. This is the very first time that titles appear on the screen, by the way. Robert Ball invented titles. Uh, largely for this film. So Scrooge turns up and meets the ghost. Early special effects. Very early special effects, 1901. Um, and I just want to take us inside the house as Scrooge backs into his house, facing this lonely evening. What's he gonna do? Everybody else is enjoying themselves. He's gonna settle down for his usual miserable supper. But of course, he's going to be haunted. And uh, everybody, you know, the audience of 1901 would have known very well what's going to happen. The question really is, how is the visitation of the ghosts, Marley's ghost, how is that going to be handled? And of course, film offers new possibilities for creating this ghostly spectral effect. You could do it with a magic lantern. People had been doing it for for several decades, but with film you could do it in a more compact and possibly a more impressive, even a more spooky way. So Scrooge settles down for his uh, bowl of gruel or whatever. And what is going to happen? He falls asleep and the ghost appears. And he is given scenes from his childhood, things that didn't happen, things that went wrong. Very familiar story. Very condensed, but I think tremendously effective um, in this new medium of film. This is really Robert Paul showing that film can do everything that's been done in other media um, just as well, if not better. We're going to leave it there. <laughs> you know the story. Um, now, Dickens remains very important indeed for filmmaking in Britain during the first years of um, the new century. British film was having a hard time by around 1908-1909. Uh, foreign imports were flooding in, Italian spectacles were coming in, Danish detective stories and dramas were coming in. These were all proving much more popular than homemade homegrown films. What was the answer? Dickens. One of the pioneer generation, um, Cecil Hepworth, started making Dickens films at the end of the decade. And in 1912, 13, 14, he made a, a series of very impressive Dickens films. At least we, we believe they're very impressive. Uh, the first one he made was Oliver Twist. That's on the left. That has disappeared. There's no known copy of it. The next one he made is David Copperfield. We do have that, and it is very impressive. It uses all the real locations uh, in which um, David Copperfield is set. Very impressive, one of the earliest British features that survived. Um, what we would love to have is Barnaby Rudge from 1915, because people pulled out all the stops when Barnaby Rudge was released. This is the, the most remarkable film yet produced by a British production company. All we have are eight stills, and these have only turned up relatively recently. You can get a sort of sense of how much building they did for the film. And some of the press notices talked about 
the fact that they'd really built a very convincing vision of London. And there's one particular reference in it which I, I find very interesting. Um, impressively realistic, and behind the streets, a magnificent reconstruction of Newgate Prison, an immense lofty structure, grey, drab, and forbidding, with a sinister gallows before its outer wall. That sounds good. People thought it was um, you know, a real achievement to create a convincing Dickensian London in an English studio. So if we had that film, we might well see just how successful this, um, uh, this stage of recreating London on screen was. Sadly, like most early British films, it's been lost. Now, Newgate Prison, that's Newgate on the left there, very, one of many, many um, engravings of Newgate, of course, was a, was a legendary place in London, legendary by the beginning of the, the 20th century. It had replaced Tyburn, which was the traditional place of execution, Tyburn Tree, etc., replaced by Newgate, and the image of um, hangings, public executions there, is one that would echo through popular literature as well as popular history. Um, but before we pursue, and I'm going to come back to the question of Dickens' adaptation a little bit later, I want to introduce the other key source for Gothic London cinema, which is not fictional, although it would soon be fictionalised. It was a series of gruesome killings in East London that became known as the Whitechapel Murders. And of course their perpetrator, never caught, never even identified convincingly, became known as Jack the Ripper, or Spring-Heeled Jack in some quarters. Um, we have a lot of imagery from the period relating to the Whitechapel murders because this is the great era of popular illustrated papers, the Illustrated Police News, the Police Gazette, um, which really went to town on picturing this series of gruesome murders. So there's, there's a, a vast amount of visual imagery which was exactly the visual imagery that was driving the interest or responding to the interest in this series of murders. And very soon, the series of apparently unsolvable murders would give rise to a, a kind of climate of fear and of apprehension, and certainly fear on the part of those who were walking the streets of London, East London, uh, that they could become the next victim. This is a very famous image uh, created by John Tenniel, the illustrator of, of Lewis Carroll, uh, with its text, The Nemesis of Neglect, which is beginning to make the connection between uh, poverty and neglect in the East End and this series of murders, because most of the murders were of uh, street walkers, of prostitutes. So there's a clear link between the, the poverty of the East End and uh, the, its unfortunate victims. By a curious coincidence, and I think it is a coincidence, um, a very popular writer of the era, Robert Louis Stevenson, published his novel, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, two years earlier, two years before the first of the Whitechapel murders. Now, there is no connection, I think, although many people have tried to create connections. The novel, the novella, came out two years before. The story of the novel, of course, is well known, I think, to most people, because it became hugely popular and successful in many different versions and forms. And this is another example of one of those popular works that jumps through different media very quickly. We saw that with Dickens. Dickens is present in every single medium of the late Victorian era, and he quickly arrives in film. The same is true of Jekyll and Hyde. Jekyll and Hyde is on stage within two years, less than two years of being published. There are touring companies, there are actors who make their name out of appearing as Jekyll and Hyde. Um, there's a huge iconography of the different versions of the story. It became one of the runaway successes of the the late 19th century. And of course, inevitably, uh, it was filmed. The very first Jekyll and Hyde film is 1912. It's 
very near the beginning. It's near the same sort of period that we've been looking at of, of uh, Cecil Hepworth's films. And some stars, some major stars, would make their names on screen through playing Jekyll and Hyde. This is John Barrymore, who looks, I think, absolutely wonderful in that posed image on the right there. And here you see him in his Hyde <laughs> version in the poster on the left. But look, at, look behind the image of Barrymore, and what you're seeing is a defining image of Victorian Gothic London. The brick, the lamppost, the alleyway, the pool of light, all of these things have become the foundation iconography of Victorian Gothic on screen. Stevenson's story doesn't have any precise location. It's the nocturnal city that Hyde stalks. And as far as Stevenson was concerned, he was obviously thinking as much of his native Edinburgh as he was of London, but it's not really set in any one place. But of course, for many, it becomes associated with Victorian London, especially the Victorian London of the Whitechapel murders. Um, I want to show you, uh, to talk briefly about two films that pick up on a kind of conflation of Jekyll and Hyde, and especially the Whitechapel murders. One of these is the third film by Alfred Hitchcock, the film that really made Alfred Hitchcock a um, successful filmmaker, called The Lodger. It's based on a novel by uh, Mrs. Belloc Lowndes, her most successful novel. The subtitle is A Story of the London Fog. And here we, be, we see another element come into play, the idea that London is shrouded in fog, which of course it was, or much of the Victorian and indeed of the early 20th century. Um, the, the novel was popular. What Hitchcock managed to do with it was to make something really rather extraordinary, uh, which would become a, a great success. The studio, incidentally, that commissioned, that commissioned the film was very uncertain about whether to release it. And there's a wonderful story in Hitchcock's um, memoirs about how it'd been sitting on the shelf. He and his wife, Alma Revel, decided that they would go for a walk while the studio bosses had a look at the film to try and decide whether to release it. So they walked down to the embankment from Gainsborough Studios, and then they walked back, by which time the decision was made the film was going to be released. What made it a big success, apart from any Hitchcock's skill, was the presence of Ivan Novello. Ivan Novello was the great heartthrob of the period, a very successful songwriter, singer, and actor. And he'd made his name in a series of films around the character of the Rat. The Rat is a member of the, the, the low life of Paris, the Apaches, uh, who live on the edge of you know, criminal society. And Novello's image was somebody who was dangerous, dangerous to know, um, but very glamorous, very attractive. So that persona played into him playing the part of the mysterious lodger who comes to stay at a house and the household, the landlady, the other members of the household start to speculate, could he be the character who is stalking the streets, murdering women? I'm going to show you a little extract from it. This is not from the, uh, the nocturnal part of it, but it gives you a sense of the eeriness, I think, of the film.
This is the, uh, the fiancé of the girl who is clearly um, coming interested in the mysterious lodger. Hitchcock was extremely inventive, of course, all through his career. And he, this is a silent film, as you have seen, uh, he invents this idea how to convey the idea of someone who is pacing the floor above. So he constructed a glass ceiling at considerable expense. We see the image of the pacing figure uh, as a visual, as the people below wonder why he's pacing. The other film, made within a year or so of Hitchcock's film, a year and a half, is another take on the Whitechapel murders. And it shows that the fame, the notoriety of London as a crime scene had spread, of course, quite widely. Um, it's a film called Pandora's Box, um, made by Georg Pabst, one of the leading figures in German uh, art film in the mid-century. The London Film Society was created in 1925 largely to show Pabst's films, which were banned by the English censor because they were considered to be too, um, too adult in their themes, not suited for the general English public. He made a series of films which treated sexuality, deviation, issues of this kind, um, a sure sign that German cinema was far ahead of British cinema in terms of its ambition and its sophistication. This film, Pandora's Box, made in 1929, is based on two plays by Franz Wedekind, which actually dated back to the beginning of the century. There are extraordinary plays. The character, the central character, Lulu, cuts a swathe through bourgeois society, uh, seducing marrying if necessary, seducing someone else, leaving a trail of ruined lives behind her. And to play Lulu in the film version, Louise Brooks, a young American star, uh, appeared on the scene. This is a silent film, of course, so her being American was, was no obstacle. And she is absolutely magnetic. I think you can see just from one still how magnetic she was. This is the beginning of the cult of Louise Brooks, which would follow her through the rest of her life the basis of a handful of films. In the story, she escapes from Germany with her lover, a countess, and a small entourage, and they come to London. When they come to London, they take lodgings in the East End, and Louise Brooks, Lulu, uh, falls into the company of Springheel Jack, Jack the Ripper. And the climax of the film, the end of the film, is when she is uh, stabbed by Springheel Jack. And here you see the, 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 the still from the scene. It's um, a remarkable film. And of course, the story of Lulu would continue to resonate in other media. Uh, Alban Berg's last opera is called Lulu and is based on exactly the same synthesis of the two plays. So this, this idea that a heroine could meet her end, her nemesis, in the East End of London, had already taken root far outside of Britain. And I think that's what's interesting about the story. You'll see some other examples in a minute or two of how this story had spread and spread and become one of the defining myths or stories of London. There's another branch to this, too, um, and that starts um, further east in Limehouse. Um, it starts really with a set of stories by Thomas Burke called Limehouse Nights. Um, and in these stories, Burke romanticizes 
the Limehouse Basin, as it were, which is Docklands, London, in those days, um, which had a pretty small Chinese population. This is because of it being a port. Lots of Chinese and East Asian uh, seamen had come to England, and a small community had started to grow. Uh, my, my colleague at Birkbeck, Jerry White, pointed out to me some time ago that the actual number of Chinese uh, people in Limehouse was very small indeed, maybe a couple of hundred <laughs> at m most, but somehow the, the myth and legend of Limehouse as a kind of alien colony seemed to appeal to people. And there are a lot of stories, not just Thomas Burke's, but a lot of stories that build on this idea of this strange, exotic presence. Anyway, um, one of the stories, The Chink and the Child, uh, was taken up by D.W. Griffith. This is the great D.W. Griffith, who had made Birth of a Nation, uh, a hugely successful film, but to us, I think, a, a hideous film. If you've, if you've seen Spike Lee's new film, um, Black Klansman, you will have seen a clip from, that, uh, from The Birth of a Nation, which is uh, extraordinary to think that this was once one of the most popular films in the world. Griffith was on the atonement trail by the time he reached 1918, 1919. He was really trying to make up for the fact that he had done some pretty horrible things with Birth of a Nation. So he makes, in America, California, uh, Broken Blossoms. He takes the story of the little waif-like girl who is beaten up and eventually killed by her father, who's a bare-knuckle boxer, the person who takes pity on her is a young Chinese man who has come to England, come to Limehouse as a Buddhist missionary. And there's a very tender, touching sequence towards the end of the film where he uh, tries to look after her after he'd been brutalized by her, her father. These are some images of here. Uh, that's the main poster for the film. And that same theme of Limehouse as an outpost of Orientalism in London comes up again in a film made at the end of the decade, uh, in 1929, a film called Piccadilly, which was revived some years ago with a very successful music score. Again shows us Anna Mae Wong, in this case, as someone who gets involved with an, a nightclub manager in the West End, hence the title Piccadilly. She takes him in one of the great scene sequences in the film to Limehouse, which she says is our Piccadilly. That already there's a sense of danger about Limehouse. It's not the kind of place where you go unless you've got a local to be your guide. And sure enough, he comes to a, an unhappy end in Limehouse. And the film is so successful, it's remade as Limehouse Nights in Hollywood with George Raft there. So a new strand of London mythology has started and is finding a take-up in other parts of the world. Now, I'm going to shift, time shift, um, forward to the Second World War period. Because I think what we see in, during the Second World War is um, a very interesting emergence of a new strain of Gothic. And there's been a lot of work done on this by literary scholars, literary historians in recent um, years. In fact, it's become a bit of a growth industry looking at the kind of fiction that was written, published during World War II. And these are just some examples of some of the names that have come up in recent studies of the World War II Gothic. Um, Henry Green, a rather enigmatic figure, who writes in his, his novel Court about the, the strange atmosphere of the blackout period, strange atmosphere created by a sense of danger, People, dark streets, of course, during the blackout, people scuttling into, into the shadows and into air raid shelters. Life being lived behind shutters. This is the climate of the Blitz period, especially. And it's, uh, it's wonderfully well caught in Graham Greene's novel, The Ministry of Fear. Uh, Ministry of Fear is one of the, the great works produced out of this period. It, uh, the story concerns... Um, a man who has just come out of a mental hospital, an asylum, and who realizes that he's stumbled into a ring of, probably a ring of Nazi spies at work in Britain. So it's a thriller. 
with a wartime setting, taking advantage of the strange atmosphere of wartime London. But as recent studies of the literary um, scene during the war have pointed out, it's not just the boys, it's not just Henry Green and Graham Green, it's also a number of women writers who write about this period. And, and two, not at all so well-known, but really interesting writers are Anna Cavan, her stories, I Am Lazarus, and Elizabeth Bowen, The Demon Lover. These are stories, again, set during the Blitz period, and they represent a resurgence of the Gothic in new and interesting and gendered ways. Because, in a sense, the Gothic has been very much the playground of male writers, male artists up to this point, but suddenly women are getting into it as well. And it's not just writers, of course. It's also artists in many different media, particularly painters. There's a war artist scheme that Kenneth Clark created, which brought a number of the most interesting painters and artists in Britain in the 1930s, made them effectively official war artists. They were given uh, funds and encouraged to record the scene around them. And this movement, this period, has become known as the, the neo-romantics neo-romanticism. I think the two, two of the most interesting figures in it are John Piper with his amazing images of ruined buildings and also Graham Sutherland. This is a, these are ruined houses as pictured by Graham Sutherland and you probably know um, some of Henry Moore's extraordinary drawings made in the underground in the, the subway um, during the war showing people sheltering in the, in the subway. These again are part of that neo-romantic impulse. So in terms of themes and visually, the war period is creating a reality which Gothic is the right idiom to represent. I want to show you, the economical way I can show you in a short space of time, um, how this Gothic, this wartime Gothic travels. In this case, it travels to, it should travel, um, we'll come to it in a moment, on film, we have the flowering of the documentary movement. Um, British documentaries during the 1930s really hit their stride during World War II. One filmmaker in particular, Humphrey Jennings, creates his only feature-length film called Fires Were Started, which is a kind of docudrama about the work of fire brigades who are putting out fires caused by bombing raids. It's an extraordinary film, um, all shot on location in London, not during actual raids, but by setting alight um, fragments of standing buildings and some very, very risky camera work indeed. That's a, a typical image from it. But it's not just documentary. There are several films made during this period that really recreate the feeling of the Blitz in fictional terms. And a very interesting film made by Ealing, The Bells Go Down, um, makes use of a model. Now, I find this really interesting. Um, this is not a film shot in the streets of London. It's a film shot in the studio using a model of the Blitz and the firefighting that's going on. So this is a theme that people really want to put on screen because it's the reality of what Londoners are living through. And of course, it's, it's of enormous importance outside of Britain to allies, particularly in America, to see what London is undergoing. And it's not surprising that Graham Greene's um, Ministry of Fear is picked up by Hollywood. Interestingly, the most successful film based on Greene at this period is made by a German émigré filmmaker, Fritz Lang, a veteran of the German Impressionist cinema of the 1920s, who's now in Hollywood and um, gets to make The Ministry of Fear. And I'm going to show you the trailer from it, which I think says it all in very punchy form. But just before I do that, Notice I put up a couple of posters for the film because the posters often tell you something. Now, that is a French poster, Spies on the Thames. So just in case people don't realise that it's set in London, it is set in London. The poster, the, the retitling of the film for a French-speaking audience is telling us it's London, don't worry. And just in case somebody doesn't realise it's about the German menace, 
we have a version of the titling here using German Gothic lettering. Here's the... This is the Ministry of Fear, a network of terror that lays bare the secrets locked in every man's mind, using strange hypnotic torture, relentless, cunning, tangling their quarry in a web of horror until he reaches the brink of madness. Who speaks? Who said that? Don't break the circle. Who told you that? Cost. Look at cost. There is no escape from the Ministry of Fear, where menace lurks behind every shadow, where a blind man sees and strikes in the night. Ministry of Fear, starring Ray Milland as a man obsessed by murder, with Marjorie Reynolds as his only hope through a nightmare of never-ending flight. Willie asked me if I was falling in love with you. And? I said, yes. I know my record. You can send me back to the asylum on any charge. I don't care what you do with me. I tell you, they did it. I ask you for one fair chance to prove it. Nobody lives here. No cigarettes, no personal belongings, nothing. Could you resist? Especially if you're sitting in America, far away from the scene of the action. The transposition of London wartime uh, atmosphere to other countries is, is a fascinating subject, and particularly what Hollywood made of it. But there's yet another strand in London Gothic that I've got to put on the screen. And that's the, the gaslight phenomenon. Because it's, it's a strange fact that cinema on both sides of the Atlantic during World War II starts to dig into the, the gaslight genre. What is the gaslight genre? It's Victorian London, or Victorian and Edwardian London. London that is lit by gaslight, full of shadows. And the film that perhaps really starts this, this uh, genre is indeed called Gaslight based on a play, made um, in, in England by Thorold Dickinson, starring Anton Walbrook and Dinah, uh, Dana Wynyard, seen by Hollywood as a terrifically successful period melodrama. So um, Hollywood studio decides to remake it. MGM wants to make a much bigger, better version, starring Charles Boyer, Ingrid Bergman, Joseph Cotton. So they demand that the original is suppressed. So Thorold Dickinson's film disappears for nearly 20 years. Nobody can see it because the Hollywood version um, has the right to um, be the only version of Gaslight. That's interesting. The comparison of the two films is fascinating. And they're both very, very interesting films. I think the Dickinson one is better myself. But the one I want to focus on is um, a slightly later film called Fanny by Gaslight. You can see how the Gaslight motif is so important to these films. Made by Anthony Asquith starring James Mason. It's a very, very interesting film. And I'm going to show you a little clip from it. Um, again, you, what you saw there was the um, London in Gaslight, uh, the um, foreign poster for it. Um, it. Travels all around the world. This is one of the English language poster. I'm going to show you the opening sequence of it, because this really is Gothic in a very particular and precise way. It's really pulling back the curtain and showing what lies beneath the bland exterior of the London streets. Here you are. Harder. Higher this time, higher. That's no good, silly. Watch me. Now it's done. It's your fault for not catching. Go and get it. I can't go down there. 
little bazaar, doesn't it? Yes, but you know I'm not allowed down there. You can do anything you like on your birthday. You're afraid. <coughs> I'm not. Yes, you are. I am not. Here. Hello, Ducky. What do you want? Nothing, thank you. Then take it, not it. Shut up. Come in, dearie, and have a sweetie. Oh, thank you. It's my birthday today. Is it? <laughs> you better have two. Oh, thank you. I'll keep one for Lucy. Who's Lucy? She's my friend. She's very pretty. Fanny's gone down there, and she hasn't what? come back. Papa is giving me a hoop. He's supposed to be a surprise, but I couldn't help peeping into the cupboard. And there Miss it Fanny, was... Miss Fanny! What are you doing? You know you're not allowed down here. Upstairs, have you gone? Go on, Ducky. Do as you're told. Go on. You tell her to look after her better. She's too nice to go poking her nose into places like this. Go on, up upstairs. Fanny, this is a flashback. The young Fanny has wandered into a brothel run by her family, and it's not even her real family. So she's uncovering layers of um, secrecy, layers of um, depravity hidden behind a respectable front, essentially. And Wilfred Lawson, the family retainer, knows very well that she's not supposed to, she's not allowed to cross the line and discover what really goes on beneath the surface, behind the, the doors. So Fanny by Gaslight really takes us back to one of the enduring themes of the Gothic, which is that murky and quite possibly improper things are happening behind the front, underneath the, the ground. We'll come back to that right at the end. But um, the immediate post-war world sees a sudden resurgence of interest in Dickens. This, again, is a really interesting phenomenon to think, why should David Lean, just emerging as you know, a very talented, very ambitious, very capable filmmaker through his wartime experience, why does he suddenly get the idea that it's time for a Dickens adaptation? Uh, he makes great expectations, huge success, brilliantly executed. Um, it's the first modern Dickens film. It's a film that everybody who remakes Great Expectations goes back to it just to see how successful it is. And more than that, he can't leave it alone. Having made Great Expectations, his thoughts are pulled towards Oliver Twist, a much darker story. It seems to be something that's drawing him towards it, something about his own childhood. Uh, and he goes on to make, just two years later, Oliver Twist, which is uh, a masterpiece by all reckoning. And the thing I want to draw attention to is the visualization of London, for, um, particularly for Oliver Twist. This is the moment at which we see this kind of defining imagery with St. Paul's in the background and this strange bridge which connects towering buildings. It's based on real photographs of London as it was in the 19th century, but it's been lovingly reconstructed for the film. And the person responsible for designing this gothic London uh, was John Bryan, a very talented production designer. And you can see here on the left the way he faithfully followed the actual photographs of the oldest buildings left in London and reconstructed these in the studio. This image is from Fagan's den with the boys, 
Oliver has introduced. And I've used that photograph because you see it says Life in the corner. This is a photograph for the large circulation American magazine Life. The film, in fact, would get into terrific difficulty in America. It was held up for three years because um, Alec Guinness's portrayal of Fagan was held to be anti-Semitic. Large nose and his um, use of, of Jewish mannerisms was considered to be too extreme for the American market. And so this ran into censorship, if you like, because of its um, excessive realism or its excessive caricature. It's, a, it's still a, a remarkable film. One of John Bryan's main um, points of reference was the series of engravings by Gustave Doré. Uh, it's a, an album called London, A Pilgrimage. And these images return again and again in the um, envisioning of Victorian London, particularly that image in the center. You see the train going across the viaduct. You'll see that same image reproduced again and again, something which um, seems to capture the essence of Victorian London between the ancient and the modernity of the railway pushing through London. And these streets, of course, these narrow streets with solitary lanterns are, for most people, the defining image of Victorian London. Let me show you a little extract. This is not from the darkest part of Oliver Twist, but it gives you a sense of what is so successful about the film in creating a sense of Victorian London. Sorry, I've got to cut that off. <laughs> Time is running, running away with us. But David Lean, of course, had been one of the greatest editors in British cinema. And you, I think you can see even from that short extract, the editing is absolutely brilliant. But John Bryan's contribution as the designer of the film was enormous. And he creates a vision of London which is essentially narrow, cramped, crowded, using forced perspective. That you get a sense of the streets and alleyways of London receding into the distance. It's a brilliant conception. It's um, very economical, but it creates a sense of Londonness, um, which, is, which is very convincing. Now, you could, we could talk for a long, long time. We haven't got the time to talk about successive iterations of Dickensian London. This is one that interests me particularly. This is Oliver, made in 68. It's uh, ostensibly a musical, but in fact, none of the people working on the film really were very interested in musicals. Carol Reed had never made a musical, and John Box, about whom I wrote a book, uh, was not interested in musicals. They wanted to create Dickensian London for the first time in colour. This is the first Dickens film in colour. Hard to believe, but Dickens had always been a black and white subject up to this point. And of course, they had a wonderful time creating all the colours which are present in Dickens' texts. But look at that tracery of steps and staircases and so forth. That comes out of Doré. It's the same images that came out of Doré through John Bryan, who was John Box's teacher, um, is reproduced in Oliver. It's, it's a, a great um, Dickensian film. And if we jump right forward to very recent times, Roman Polanski, a bit like David Lean, 
was suddenly seized by the idea after making The Pianist, a great film about his own childhood, his experiences as a, a young boy in Nazi-occupied Poland, what did he want to do next? He wanted to go back to Oliver Twist. There is something very uh, attractive about this when people want to burrow into their own childhood. And Polanski has talked a lot about how the text spoke to him. Designed by Alan Starsky. Now, I have talked to Alan Starsky at some length about this, and he said they sat down and watched the David Lean films because that's where you start when you're making a new version of um, one of these novels. But they couldn't shoot in Britain, so they shot in the Barandov studio in Prague, and they built a beautiful, as you can see, rather lavish version of Victorian London. And the film is brilliant, I think, but apart from anything else, its visualization of London in relatively modern times is, is quite outstanding. They rethought questions like, where would Fagin have had his den? What kind of building would it be? And their solution is very interesting. If you haven't seen it, worth having a look at. Alan Starsky, by the way, designed um, Schindler's List and The Pianist, so he's a versatile production designer. A quick mention, because there isn't time for more than a quick mention, of something else, which is a very particular little strand of what are, London Gothic, which draws on the underground. Um, the underground is very particular to London, obviously. It's the oldest underground railway system in the world. It's Victorian. And there are two films in particular, I would say. There are many, but there are two in particular. Quatermass and the Pit, the third of the Quatermass series, which actually locates the arrival of the aliens from outer space in excavations in a new underground station. And Deathline, uh, an extraordinarily gruesome 1972 film which I don't recommend you watch on your own if you're of a nervous disposition. I hid under the seat the first time I saw it, largely. It's about um, something nameless and horrible emerging from the tunnels of the underground, actually between Hoburn and Russell Square. <laughs> I can never go onto the Russell Square um, underground station without thinking, having a little twinge as I remember Deathline. Um, I won't spoil it for you if you haven't seen it, but... It is available in various forms. Donald Pleasance is the detective who's trying to solve the mystery of why are people disappearing from the platform at Russell Square. And one of my last exhibits, which again is a strand of London Gothic that I find really very interesting. There isn't time to show you an extract, but this is a remarkable film. It's, it's a kind of, um, it's an apocalyptic horror movie, which has a lot of violence, a lot of fire, as you can see, it's about dragons that are disturbed, again, by excavating for a new underground line, by the way, and take over Britain, the earth, actually. The dragons rule, and Christian Bale uh, is one of the guerrilla fighters who is trying to fight back against the dragons. Now, you may say this is a bit rubbish. What are dragons doing over the Houses of Parliament? But, by the way, um, if you know your London mythology your London history, you will realize that actually in the Lord Mayor's procession every year, uh, Gog and Magog, who are the mythic giant guardians of London, are carried in procession. There is a lot of Gothic legend and lore and mythology built into the foundation of London. So in a strange way, I would suggest that Reign of Fire is reminding us of that um, in its own distinctive way. My last item, fortunately, since we're almost out of time, is another fascinating, I think, version of modern London Gothic. And this is a graphic novel by um, Alan Moore, one of the masters of the modern graphic novel, and Eddie Campbell. And it's a return to that primordial story, the Whitechapel murders. This is another version of the Whitechapel murders. Uh, no holds barred. It's quite a, a grown-up graphic novel, as you can from that page I'm showing you on the right there. And it was filmed um, by um, the Hughes brothers in, a, I think, a very remarkable film um, starring Gen Johnny Depp as the somewhat uh, um, adult, adult-brained, he smokes too much, takes various illicit substances, detective who is trying to get to the bottom of, essentially, the Whitechapel murders. And let me just show you a little extract from it 
to give you a sense of how this Gothic atmosphere is recreated with very modern techniques. Did they come to you, sir, as a loyal mason? Did they ask you to help them cover up the prince's secret marriage? That's how it started, yes. And then you discovered the prince had syphilis. He's going to die of it, Inspector. Would you like a tour of the syphilis wards? Your physician, in ordinary to the Queen, entrusted with the well-being of the heir to the throne. Only you had reason to believe that these unfortunates, these whores, these traitors, destroyed your life's work. Symbols, the mitre, the pentacle star. Even someone as ignorant and degenerate as you can sense that they course with energy and meaning. I am that meaning. One day, men will look back and say I gave birth to the 20th century. An extraordinary film. Also shot at the Barendorf studio, by the way, designed by Martin Child, brilliant uh, production designer. And I think as a reimagination of Victorian Gothic London, it's really quite outstanding, particularly because it refreshes the imagery that we've come to know so well from Hammer horror films and shows them in a striking modern light, taking its inspiration from the graphic novel, uh, from Alan Moore's graphic novel. And there's a metaphysical dimension to it too. It reflects on the nature of time, uh, linking the Victorian era to our own. It connects us with the rich seam of London Gothic that, that stems from the Whitechapel murders. Uh, that title, From Hell, actually comes from one of the first letters that was sent by the murderer. That's where the title is. And I would argue that it, it exemplifies what, what uh, my, my colleague at Birkbeck, Roger Luckhurst, has called a Gothicized apprehension of London. He's one of the great scholars of modern Gothic. Um, a defining characteristic of modern Gothic has been it's anti-modernist stance. It rejects the rupture that modernism celebrated and embraced, and instead it reasserts order after mayhem, as another Gothic scholar, Heather Nunn, puts it. I think it's fundamentally a conservative and rather nostalgic way of dealing with modernity. But it's one that is closely, if not intrinsically, linked to London and to its history and its culture. Of course, there are other Gothics. There's American Gothic, there's German Gothic, etc. But there's something um, central, I think, about London, English and London Gothic. Gothic studies uh, are very much alive within literary and cultural studies today. It's a, it's a huge growth area amongst people working in, in literature. What I've tried to do here is to track the Gothic mode through British film history. Uh, and my claim would be that um, this rather spectral and fantastic city is London's gift to cinema. If you're interested in pursuing London on screen a little further, those are some links there. If you look at the Birkbeck Institute for the Moving Image, you'll see the list of titles that are showing uh, in our regular screenings from the 10th of October onwards. And you'll find some other perhaps useful, useful things. And that's an image, by the way, on the left. I imagine you recognize it. It's from Dickensian, a rather wonderful series that ran several years ago which is not recommissioned, unfortunately, uh, but a fascinating series um, which tries to weave all the characters of Dickens' novels together into a kind of um, a whole, which is a real piece of modern Gothic. And uh, on the um, 
printout of this talk, you'll find a link to a really interesting essay about Dickensian by Luke McKernan. I think I've overstayed my time, so I'd better stop there. Thank you.